Let's open up the word. Let's see what God has for us today in Matthew chapter 9. So please open up your Bibles and turn with me there. And please stand with me to read God's word. We, we stand to remind ourselves that this is God's word. This is not man's word. This is God's word, which is holy, which is true, which is perfect, which is without error. And God is going to speak to us. God is going to speak to us as we read. John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report about this went through all that district. And Lord God, we thank you that we can read your word today. We thank you, Lord, that the report about what you did and about how great you are went through all that land. Thank you, Lord, that it has gone all the way to our land and that we can now read your word and say, praise God that that you are the one that makes people well. Praise God that you are the one who saves. Praise God that... You are the one that we want to follow. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you, Lord, for being here among us. Thank you for your spirit that that helps us understand the word. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, that you would make us the people that you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt like, like God had abandoned you? Have you ever felt that, that God had forgotten about you? Or, or maybe just didn't come through? I know how it feels. I, I've, I've felt that way before. In, in, our, in our lower moments, in our weaker times, we are prone to think that way, that, that maybe somehow God has abandoned us. Maybe somehow God has, has forgotten about us, or that God just hasn't come through. But I have found that, that our feelings often play tricks on us. And, and to contra- counteract their effects, we need a healthy dose of truth. See, sometimes we expect God to, to do things, and it makes it seem like He is at the mercy of our timetable rather than the other way around. To talk to some people, you'd think that that God was responsible to do everything that they want to have happen in the timing that they expect. We need the message of Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, where we see man's imperfect faith 
and God's perfect power side by side. That God is dealing with people's imperfect faith all the time as he displays his power in his perfect time. On the heels of showing that Jesus initiates true change and genuine devotion comes a man whose daughter had died as well as a woman struggling with an ongoing health issue. And Jesus is going to teach them that his timing is perfect and his power is perfect. There is, as Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, a time for everything under heaven. Matthew has shown, as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has shown in, in chapter 7 and verse 29 that Jesus spoke with authority. And now, as we've gone through chapters 8 and 9 these last few months, he has been showing that Jesus has authority over everything, over sickness, over demons, over life itself, over nature. And now he's about to show them that that even goes as far as authority over death. There is a connection here between Matthew's dinner in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, where Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew invites all his friends to to come and meet Jesus. There's a connection between that and the question on fasting that we looked at last week that really wasn't a question about fasting. The disciples of John the Baptist were saying, why aren't your disciples as holy and as pious and as devoted to you, to God, as we are? And they were indicting Jesus in that as well. And there's a connection here that between these miracles, it's kind of a twofer on the miracle front because we've got two miracles happening uh, almost simultaneously in the same setting, the same context. Now Matthew knows how to say a lot with few words. I know some of you would like me to do that sometimes. Matthew knows how to say a lot of stuff in very few words. He says in eight verses what it took Mark to say in 23 and Luke to say in 17. And so, as you'll see as we go through this passage today, Mark and Luke will help fill in the facts in this story. But let's start at verse 18, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 18. You've got Jesus interacting with the disciples of John, and as he's doing so, a man, and Mark 5.22 and Luke 8.41 tells us it's Jairus. This is Jairus coming to him. A man comes to Jesus. His name is Jairus. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's the highest ranking religious official in Capernaum at that time. He was in charge of worship services. He was in charge of the teaching and the overall leadership over the synagogue. He was a pillar of Jewish orthodoxy. He was living living among those who hated Jesus and wished to see him gone. But Jairus was different. Desperation drove him to Jesus. He was in need of God to save his only daughter. Luke chapter 8 and verse 42 tells us that, that this was his only daughter. And he needed God to save her life. Verse 18 says he, he knelt before him. He bowed down before Jesus. It shows extreme honor and respect for him. That, I, that act would involve prostrating himself to the ground flat out on the ground and kissing the very ground at Jesus' feet or even kissing Jesus' feet or the hem of his garment he didn't care what his neighbors thought what his family thought what his other religious friends or fellow Jews thought 
And he tells Jesus that his daughter died. From Mark and Luke, we learn that she was almost dead. Matthew fast forwards in this story to what we will find out soon enough. Fast forwards to the place where he showed up at the house and she's dead. Jairus says, come lay your hand on her and she will live. Everything he does, by the way, shows humility and shows sincerity. There, sometimes when you would bow down before someone, you might not do it sincerely. You might do it to gain an advantage or to have them give you something. But here, all that he did showed sincerity and humility before God. Because God must have been working on his heart. He is convinced that Jesus is able to do what he's asking of him. Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. He was convinced. He was resolute in his, in his decision. He knew this was going to happen. There was faith. Verse 19, a very unique thing happened. Jesus gets up and follows someone. He follows him. They're going to his house. They're going to go see the daughter. So here was his dad. So distraught over his daughter, what father wouldn't exhaust every possible remedy in helping her? And he comes to Jesus, and what drives him to Jesus is desperation and a great need, as well as great faith. But what happens next must have been puzzling to him, because Jesus seems to let him down. While they're on the way, Jesus is intercepted by a woman Someone, by the way, who would have been seen as a nuisance in that setting, who would have been seen as an unworthy obstacle in the way of Jairus to everyone but Jesus. Jesus Jesus sees this interruption as an opportunity because with God, interruptions become opportunities. Verse 20. We see that this woman is unnamed. She's been suffering for 12 years. She keeps bleeding and it won't stop. And not only did she go out in public, but she was audacious enough to try and touch Jesus. In fact, she cut in line in front of Jairus. I know what you're like when you cut, you get someone cut in line in front of you. You're saying things about them. You might even say something to them. Jairus, I don't know what he was thinking, but he's probably thinking, what's she thinking? It's cutting in front of me. We've got a situation here. My daughter needs help. She'd been sick for 12 years. Chronic illness. She spent every penny, the, the Matthew and Mark and Luke tells us, every penny she had was spent on the doctors, and it only made her worse, not better. In fact, Mark says it only made her worse. Luke, the physician, maybe trying to uh, save face for his profession, just said, no one could help her. She had to have been weak, anemic, after all that loss of blood. She was considered ritually unclean, excluded from normal social and religious life, as good as dead in those times. Chronically unclean, unable to engage in the common community. Like a death sentence with no end in sight except maybe the relief of of death. Maybe like Job. By the way, this was not an immediate need. She'd been sick for 12 years. Her life was not in danger. 
This healing could have waited. On the surface, getting to Jairus' daughter in a timely fashion seemed to be the pressing need. Seemed to be the more urgent need. This woman had faith. This woman had faith, but it, it seems that she was a bit superstitious. There was a little bit of superstition mixed in. Verse 20 says that she came up and touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. It was the outer fringe and attached to the outer fringe in the four corners of every Jewish man's garment were tassels with a blue cord. Reminded them to obey God's commands. It reminded them that they were holy to God. That Jesus took issue with Pharisees who would lengthen the tassels on their robes to make people think, wow, how, how spiritual they are, how, how devoted to God they are. But on the outer fringe were these four tassels with the blue cord that reminded them to obey God. It reminded them that they belonged to God. To set them apart. This lady comes up and touches the edge of his cloak. D.A. Carson said of her, moved in part by a superstitious view of Jesus, she struggled through the crowd which because of her unclean condition she should have avoided. Anyone who touched her would become unclean. Leviticus 15 and verses 25 through 30 tell us that. And in spite of the cultural pressure to stay away, she, she seeks Jesus out. She, she goes to Jesus. Everyone else would have rejected her, but verse 22 says that, that Jesus turned and saw her. She could not escape notice. And Jesus, in essence, basically says, touching my clothes won't heal you, but faith in me will. God will use whatever faith you've got. Mark and Luke say that Jesus stopped and asked, who touched me? He knew, but interesting that he would call attention to her. Interesting that he would mark her out for some special purpose. He was showing her just how special she was to him as one of his creations. He refers to her with the tender name of daughter. It's a, it's a significant term of fatherly care for, for one as young as Jesus at that time. In contrast to the Pharisees who put arbitrary labels on people. In contrast to the Pharisees who put artificial categories and put people in them. But Jesus deals with individual needs and faith. Jesus cared for that lady. And Jesus cares for you. You may be sitting here today and you just want to hide. You think, I, I, I'm not very uh, lovable and, and, and God couldn't want to help me in my situation. But he cares for you. William Barclay put it this way. We see Jesus amidst the crowd giving the whole of himself to that one poor, embarrassed woman. We see that he did not think in terms of crowds. He thought in terms of individual men and women. God is like that. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there's messengers coming to Jairus, telling him not to bother Jesus any longer. His daughter's dead. Not only had Jesus let him down by not going straight there, he had allowed his daughter to die. To take time 
for someone that wouldn't have been able to go to the synagogue that Jairus led. Someone unworthy, someone outcast, someone ostracized, someone not in the community. When the Titanic sank in April of 1912, the the New York paper, The American, wrote a big article about it and singled out one man. He was a millionaire, John Jacob Astor. At the end of the article, they mentioned, by the way, that 1,800 others had also died. The only one that seemed newsworthy was the millionaire. The others were a side note. Now, it would have been easy for Jairus to think this of the woman that Jesus stops to help. What, what use is she? What worth is she? As good as dead. Why are you waiting? Why are you making me wait while you help her when my daughter is in dire need? God does not want to show partiality. You see that in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Peter learned a lesson. Peter learned a good lesson. He's with Cornelius. He has this vision. And God is telling him that there is no one that he should call unclean. And he learns this in in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. He said, Truly I understand now that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Fearing God and doing what is right means believing in Jesus. All who turn to him in faith are welcome to him. This lady came to Jesus. You got the man, you've got the woman, now you've got a child. You got a child. In verse 23, we see that this unnamed child, this only daughter, and she's dead. She's not doing anything here but but lying there, unable to move. And in her, we see the dead raised and despair replaced by hope. Verse 23, Jesus comes into the house and he sees Flute players and a noisy crowd. Professional mourners were often hired for funerals. One rabbi wrote that even the poorest in Israel should have at least two flute players and one wailing woman. A prominent family like that of the synagogue ruler would have had many family and friends and many flute players and many wailing women there. The funeral was about to start. But what happens is that Jesus ejects the crowd... Verse 24, he sends them out. Mark 5 and Luke 8 tell us that Jesus rebukes them. He says, what are you doing? Why are you wailing? Why are you mourning? She's not dead. She's just asleep. They laugh at Jesus. They ridicule him. The response of those who have no faith. They didn't want to listen to Jesus' word. Funeral's about to start. What's he talking about? shows us something that what we think doesn't define reality and what we think is in the realm of possibility doesn't define reality not to God all things are possible with God and God knows what he will do God knows what he's going to do and he was about to show his authority right here was not over all of life but over death as well death could not hold him Mark says that five witnesses were with him Peter, James, John and and the girl's parents And they see this happen. Verse 25. He goes in. He takes her by the hand and he raises her up. She comes back to life. This is the first time that in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus raises someone from the dead. 
Now, in those days, touching a corpse was off limits. You'd become unclean for a week. And Jesus brings that girl to life, transforming uncleanness to purity. He doesn't get defiled by touching this corpse. The corpse comes to life because of Jesus' touch. That's how powerful he is. Jesus' authority as Christ extended beyond life. He had authority over life and death. Verse 26, we see that the news about this went through all the land. Everybody heard about it. Everybody said, glory to God. Look what happened. Look what Jesus did. And we can learn something about this from from the, from the standpoint of living on God's timetable, not ours. Acknowledging God's perfect power and his, and his perfect timing as we live with imperfect faith. In the face of death and in the, in the pressures of life. First of all, in the face of death. If you go over to Matthew chapter 8. You remember with me that there was a centurion. And the centurion came to Jesus. And he said, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. Verse 8, he says, I'm not worthy, Lord, to have you come under my roof. But you just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He believed that Jesus could heal long distance. Remember that long distance healing that Jesus did. He said the word, and that very, that very moment, the servant was healed. But Jairus believed that Jesus could heal from the long distance of death. That's faith. Deep faith in Jesus, in the faith of death. Lay your hand on her and she will live. Evidence that God's kindness carries us in life and death. You see, this, this man Jairus and, and the woman who's unnamed, they both came to Jesus with, with, you could arguably, somewhat weak faith. He seems, his faith seems to be mixed with a, a, a sort of desperation. Maybe he had tried every imaginable um, remedy and came to Jesus as a last resort. She was on the brink of death. And this lady came with, with what seems to be superstition. But it is telling that Jesus accepts them as they are. He doesn't mention their deficiency, but he highlights his sufficiency. See, God's timing's perfect. He patiently takes into account our unwise and, and immature and, and often impulsive behavior. No matter how weakly we come to Christ, his arms are open wide to receive us. Now I want to focus us now on this idea of living on God's timetable, but not in the face of death, which we will all face, but in the, in the pressures of life, in the, in, the, in the press of life, which, by the way, in light of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, which says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, or moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This idea of responding to God's perfect timing and God's perfect power in the midst of, of hard life, it ought to be marked by, by, by I'm going to give you five interrelated things, things that should mark our response to God and His perfect timing. The first is Surrender. Surrender, which says to God, take everything, take full possession, that all that I am and have and hope to be is yours. It's in your hands. That is, that is the mindset that Jairus had when he bowed down to Jesus. And that's the mindset the crowd didn't have when they ridiculed him and laughed at him for saying that the girl was only asleep. 
James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. The idea here is that you would align yourself under God, that you would take a dependent posture before God. But our enemy, our adversary, the devil, does not want us to take a dependent posture before God, does not want us to align ourselves under God. But that's exactly what it says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee. But to surrender to God means to yield ownership of your life to him. To relinquish control of your life to him. To relinquish control over what you think is yours. Property, position, people, time, whatever, you name it. It's to, it's to give everything over to God and, and surrender into his hands. It's to say what I have belongs to him because he is the giver of all good things kind of like marriage and i said last week that every every illustration breaks down at some point but it's kind of like marriage when we promise we go we come to a, a, a church and we promise before god and and our family and friends and other witnesses that we will love honor and cherish and obey till death do us part till jesus comes back or we go to be with him or one of the two dies that we promise to give our lives to love and to serve our spouse as long as we both shall live. And the two are not one. You surrender your singleness and you become one in Christ in covenant marriage. That's the covenant c- commitment that God makes to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we in turn give ourselves over to him. But the awesome thing is God can make a unilateral covenant and he does because we can't keep covenant with God. We're often unfaithful. But praise God, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So our covenant with God in many ways is unilateral on God's part. He made the covenant that he will never break. If it was up to us to keep our half of the bargain, it would be broken. But it works because God is faithful even when we are not. And giving everything over to God is not easy. It is a gradual process of peaks and pits and highs and lows and victories and defeats as we walk through life. We need to surrender. The second thing, and the second thing is the first cousin of surrender, and it's trust. To trust yourself over, trust God over yourself. As Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will direct your path. He will lead you in the way that he wants you to go. Trust says, I'm in your hands, God. Now let's just say that you're one of those that says, you know what? I feel as if God has abandoned me. You feel that God's abandoned you. Let's just test that out for a moment. And let's say you're a believer. We have to ask this question. Is it true? Is it true that God has abandoned you? You feel as if God has abandoned you. Is it true? And then you have to ask this question. Does God abandon his own? Is God in the habit and the practice of of abandoning his own? Can you ever see a time when God abandoned his own? The answer is no. On all three counts. So the idea here is that feeling does not reflect fact. And so facts must override feelings. And so you would maybe take a verse like Matthew 28, 20. Where Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Maybe you go over to, to, to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse, and verse 5 where it says that never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Remember, God is true. God never lies. Let God be found true, but every man a liar, right? We lie sometimes. God never does. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So you can know with assurance that when you say, I think God abandoned me, you feel that way, but you know it's not true if you're a believer. We've got to do that with anything like that. That's, that's part of trusting God. Another part of trusting God is not waiting until you think that your motives or your faith or your theology is perfect so that you can come to him. You come as you are. Don't excuse your sin, but acknowledge your need of him to correct you and to shape you and to make you the person he wants you to be. To remake you into the person he wants you to be. Trust him to do that. So your motives, your faith, your theology, however you want to put it, are important. But they are not important in a determining way. They are important more in a helping or hindering way. The idea is this. God's truth stands no matter what we say or where we land or what we do. God's truth stands. Just because we say, you know, I, it's got to be this way because I think it's, it's this way. It just feels right. And if God says otherwise, you're wrong. God's right. God's truth stands no matter where you land. Verse 22, Jesus told the woman that his, her faith had made her well. So let's get into this idea that maybe there was a little superstition involved in her touching the edge of his cloak. The touching of the tassel didn't make her well. And faith itself does not heal. Just having faith in a vacuum, faith just out there, faith, no, that does not heal. God heals. God gives faith as a gift, and that faith is not just out there, it's faith in Him. He is the object of our faith. And so it means that this is the means, our faith that He gives us is the means by which He brings the blessing of healing and salvation and all the blessings in Christ that we enjoy by faith. The idea, I want you to see something in verse 21 and 22, in Matthew 9 here. There's a word that is used three times. She says to herself, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. He says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then it says, instantly the woman was made well. That's the Greek word sozo, which in the New Testament is used for being forgiven from your sins. The idea here is that there is some sort of redemptive connection to what he is doing with this lady. That word is not used in every healing situation. There's something going on here, and it's something that God is doing. Now, faith is not magical. Some people like to talk about faith in this ethereal way, and it's not connected to uh, God as the object. And faith is not magical. You don't just say, oh, I have faith, so this is going to work out. God, the object of our faith, is powerful that's the idea this is about the power of faith's true object of tr excuse me of true faith's object god himself all powerful all present all knowing see the woman remember this she trusted in her doctors for 12 years she got nowhere fast with that then she trusted jesus and something happened now, I don't want anybody going out today saying, well, doctors aren't important. Okay, that's not true. 
doctors are important, but God does the healing. The doctor gives you medicine, but God uses the doctor's wisdom and the medicine and, and whatever. And if you're healed, it's because God heals. But, so we must believe God who works all things after the counsel of his will. And we work together with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tell us that. Knowing full well that it is God who carries the work. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12 tells us. But it's right next door to Philippians 2.13, which says, It is God who is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Jairus and his household needed to learn something. They needed to understand God's sovereign timing and the extent of Christ's power. So here's what, what Jesus tells him. Mark, Mark 5.36 and Luke 8.50. It says, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And the idea is, trust me as the object of your faith. The idea is trust. Third, which is a close companion of trust, is obedience. We are called to obey. Now, we can all think of times that we uh, acted impulsively and lived to regret it. Maybe it was an unwise or ill-advised purchase you made. Or a business deal that went south. Or a relationship that went sour. Or a decision of some kind that you had no peace about, but you dove into anyway, and you knew everything in you was saying, don't do it. And you did it anyway. We've all been there, right? We run ahead of what God wants us to do, and we pay the consequences. But obedience says to God, I will do what you say. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, Jesus said, continue in my word. Jesus said, love one another. Jesus said, abide in me. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus said, believe in me. Do as I did to you. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So keep doing what you know God wants you to do. Keep being faithful in the little things. Obey the word of God as you respond to God in the press of life in light of his perfect timing and perfect power. The fourth thing is that once we obey, we need to do something else. We need to rest. These are, all, these are all interconnected, but the idea of resting is not thinking that our obedience to God earns us the outcome we desire. It's this idea that we see in Hebrews that says there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We rest from our works and rest in His. The idea is um, we willingly say, we don't, we don't think, hey, I do this and then God gives me that, but we willingly say, I'm going to accept your verdict no matter what. I'll accept your verdict. And we resist the temptation to pull strings. Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest, be still in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. When you rest, you also, defeat, you also reject defeatism and sensationalism and superstition. Defeatism says, I can't see the answer, and I see no way out, so all is lost. There is no hope sensationalism says if this or that doesn't happen then God is not at work and superstition says this if I don't do this or that God won't come through and bless and we do that more than we realize you don't know how many times this week I, I caught myself thinking well if I just do this this will happen we do it all the time have you ever thought that you must do a certain thing in a certain way for God to bless you have you ever thought that something didn't pan out in life because of something you did or didn't do? If you think a formula must be followed in order for things to happen, 
you are being superstitious. Anything we think we must do in a specific way every time in order for God to work. Last thing, fifth. Overall, we're called to endure. Endure. Persevere. Live in light of eternity because heaven awaits. Kirsten Repper got married yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding. Her husband, Greg, waited 15 years to marry her. Her proud father is sitting right here. The pastor who performed the ceremony is sitting right behind him. Now, when Greg was seven, I heard that he asked God to give her, him, give her to him as a wife. He waited 15 years. That's an amazing story. Great patience. Great patience. James 5.11 says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, that we have, you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful but here's what happens in life we want solutions and we think we need to help God out and we don't know what it means to endure but slowly but surely we learn as God patiently works in us and uses our imperfect faith displaying his perfect power and his perfect time let's say you've been waiting 12 years for an answer to your prayers let's say it's been longer than that no guarantee that things will change no guarantee that something different will happen. But here the guarantee is this. You will change. You will change. God is using the pain to perfect you. It's like sandpaper, smoothing things out. God is using the pain. God is using the waiting to perfect you, to do a work in you. We're tempted to panic. We're tempted to work things out on our own. It's like Sarah and Abraham trying to get the son of promise in their own time. What they get Ishmael. Relief may not come this side of heaven. One day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Dennis Dirk said this, when the hour becomes dark or our fears intense and the challenge is immense, we must resolutely resist the tantalizing temptation to find confidence in our abilities and to trust the tangible and to lust for security. A rightly ordered mind sees human enemies or obstacles as but heavenly tools driving us toward the divine sanctuary. Our hope is trusting a gracious Lord as our only true help and deliverance. God's timing is perfect. Psalm 31, 15 says that our times are in God's hands. God's timing is connected to His will. As time passes, his will is revealed. God knows the beginning from the end. And there is a good purpose in everything he allows. That everything God allows is perfectly timed for our good and his glory. That mispromotion. That lost job. That unjust accusation. That honest mistake that cost you. That unfair treatment that, that held you back. You name it. Jesus says, courage, courage, all those things go through me first. And we learn from the man, we learn from the woman, we learn from the 12-year-old girl that God is sovereign over time and timing. And we may not realize it right now, but our times are in God's hands. That all the days that were ordained for us, even when there was not even one of them, as Psalm 139 tells us, God knew. 
So what do we do? We wait on him. We keep pace and patiently wait. Because Jesus is never late. Never late. 